Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Or, uh, yes. <laughs> Let's not do that. Yeah. Last week, our dear friend Alistair spoke very persuasively on the kind of disciple Jesus wants. And today's passage, I think, which is Acts 19, 11 to 22, can be seen as taking the topic further on. It's been said wisely, in my opinion, that one of our greatest freedoms is the freedom to choose how we react to things. And these verses help us to examine our reactions to various different challenges. And the challenges must come, because as the kingdom of God increases, opposition increases too. Our lives, as the kind of disciples Jesus wants, are full of both blessings and buffetings. In the words of the song, you can't have one, you can't have one, you can't have one without the other. There we are. That identified the sort of age divide in the room. Yeah. See, I think, it's, I think it's possible to choose a life without either blessings or buffetings. But what we're called to is to press into God and take the consequences. It is time, as Albus Dumbledore brilliantly put it, to choose between doing what is easy and what is right. I'm going to rewind very slightly onto last week's passage and read from verse 8 to 22. Then I'm simply going to point out six features of the narrative, six places where the Ephesians, and for us too, choices have to be made. If you want a title for this talk, then I'll call it Time to Choose, What is Easy or What is Right. So without further ado, let's read Acts 19, 8 to 22. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, but the temptation to do a demon voice is so high. (laughs) But I won't, I resist, I resist, I'm in control. Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who practiced magic, arts, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go into Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed himself in Asia for a while. Well, we're going to break this, uh, this passage down into six bite-sized chunks, but as we'll soon see, some of these chunks are chewier than others and require a little bit more mastication. <laughs> Chunk number one, verses eight and nine, exposition of the gospel. This three-month period of acceptance in the synagogue was unusually long for Paul. It normally was only a matter of days before the hardliners would chuck him out. But I'd like you to notice a couple of things about his preaching here. First, he not only speaks boldly, but he evidently has some success as well, because we read that he not only uh, reasoned, but actually persuaded as well. Secondly, notice what he persuades them about. This is not some cleverly designed four-point gospel message and do you know Jesus as your personal saviour. It is the kingdom of God. That is the gospel that Jesus himself preached. That is the gospel Jesus taught his disciples to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, the idea was a familiar one to his largely Jewish audience on this occasion. When the long-form Messiah appeared, the Jews were expecting to throw off the shackles of the oppressor, currently the Roman Empire, but there have been many others, and a golden age of peace and justice would finally begin. Paul's challenge to them was to believe that this kingdom had already come in the person of the Lord Jesus. They tolerated this difficulty. Uh, uh, Yes, it's a difficult but wonderful teaching, and they, they do tolerate it for an extraordinary three months. But then look, suddenly Paul's preaching is vigorously opposed. We're not told what slanders they aim at Paul, at his gospel, at his followers, but it can't have been fun listening to them. And rather than continue a pointless confrontation on somebody else's turf, Paul simply dips out. He said enough. They can either follow him to his new, more public venue, or they can stay where they are and remain in ignorance. And the Ephesian Jews had a difficult choice here. They had something to lose. Unlike their brothers at Philippi, they'd been allowed to build their own synagogue. So they evidently had an accepted place in society. And that place wasn't just any old where. It was in Ephesus, the premier city in the whole Roman province. Wealthy, much visited, cosmopolitan, and culturally allowed to remain very Greek. Paul's teaching about the kingdom must have been a worry to those who had some standing, some decent living in this wonderful city. If they accepted Jesus as king, wouldn't that bring on a confrontation with the Roman emperor? Might this Jesus actually require them to hit the road with weirdo Paul and take this message to their brothers and sisters in other cities? What would happen then to their businesses, their families, their cushy lives? They had to choose between what was right and staying as they were. In our own discipleship too, we come across the same kind of challenge when we're introduced to new teaching or a new calling or any form of radical discipleship. And unfortunately, some people react aggressively, just like the naysayers in verse 9. If you remember when we discussed the change management curve a month or two ago, this comes as no surprise. This is a typical phase two reaction. If you don't know that teaching, uh, get Jim to explain it to you. (coughs) 
In the early years of the Kingdom Vineyard, this, this sort of reaction happened quite a lot. It was quite astonishing to me the way that some people who presented themselves as Christians preferred to go off in a huff and bear a grudge rather than actually sorting things out. And believe it or not, if they couldn't find a genuine grievance, some of them simply made stuff up. In short, the reaction we see in verse 9 is still a common one to this day. Sad, but true. So when we hear accusations against another Christian or another church, and let me just say that can come from other people, it can come from news and social media, or it can just come from our own internal monologues. When we do hear these things, let's be quick to believe the best of others and glacially slow to join in the accusation game. Because as the song says, it ain't necessarily so. And anyway, whose job is it to accuse the brethren? Yours? Mine? Whose job is it? Who? The devil. The devil, absolutely. That's what Satan means. It means accuser. When the bride of Christ is being slandered, something more than merely human is going on. When the gospel is truly proclaimed, it is almost inevitably attacked. So, first couple of verses here are a story of exposition and rejection. Chunk two, extraordinary miracles. Verse 10 seems at first glance to be quite a surprising statement. All the residents of Asia. Well, really? But in fact, this simply illustrates how central Ephesus was to everyone in the province known then as Asia. The cult of Artemis was a big part of this as we shall see next week, but it was also a major center of administration, culture, commerce, and learning. What happened in Ephesus was hot property in the whole province. What is genuinely strange to me, though, is verse 12. It reminds us of the woman who touched Jesus' robe and was healed. But in that case, at least Jesus was wearing the robe at the time. So perhaps it's a bit more like Peter walking past and his shadow healing people in Acts 8. But there, at least Peter was physically present. Or perhaps we could look back to the curious story in 2 Kings 13, where a corpse hastily buried in the tomb of uh, Elisha spontaneously springs back to life. It just appears that occasionally, as if just to shake things up a bit, God does miracles that don't fit in with our ideas of how they should be done. Carl Medeiros, who planted a vineyard church in Lebanon, heard tales of the Muslim skater kids who used to hang around his church, praying in the name of Jesus and seeing even broken bones healed. You know, the full, the full deal with uh, angulation, rotation, and penetration. So you've got bits of bone sticking out at funny angles. through the, And they pray in Jesus' name, they'd just be healed. And these are Muslim guys. Is God allowed to do that? Jesus normally healed with just a word and a touch, or either one of the two. But he sometimes also used saliva, even mud. Frustratingly, we're never told why. Perhaps that's so we can't make a formula of it. Some commentators flatly refuse to believe that verse 12 happened at all. <coughs> Their dislike of Christian relics in healing, which let's not forget is common practice in a large part of the church to this day, blinds them to the possibility that God could work in such a way. God could. 
disagreeing with that, they discount this. But one of the greatest spiritual principles of them all is that this is not that. And God can work however he likes. He doesn't have to ask our permission. Now, many of you will be thinking all miracles are extraordinary enough. But these, Dr. Luke tells us, are extraordinary even among miracles. In other words, these stories were true even though they weren't like all the other miracles. I think there are two equal and opposite temptations when we're confronted with stories of extraordinary miracles. One is just to say, that's not God. That's not how he works. As many did to their cost with the Toronto Blessing. The other is to treat the miracle worker as more like a magician than a simple fellow Christian. Some of the greatest miracle workers of the past few decades have been put on impossibly perilous pedestals of popularity by well-meaning Christians. And some of them have come a spectacular cropper. About 12 or 15 years ago, I was told that so-and-so, who'd famously healed hundreds in a couple of weeks, in Jesus' name, had been working for five days with only two hours sleep a night. I replied, then he's a fool. And so it proved. A couple of days later, he had run off with a woman in the ministry team, and his great ministry had crashed and burned. And people were hurt. Not because the miracles weren't true, but because they put their faith in a man, not in God, who was doing the miracles. And a man is as prone to be fallible as the next man. Sad, but true. We see an alarming example of how this kind of magical thinking can go wrong in the next section. Chunk number three, verses 13 to 16, exorcism. <clears throat> I've always been rather surprised at the mention of Jewish exorcists in verse 13. The only other biblical reference I can think of is in Luke 11, verse 19, where Jesus asked the people, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Well, apparently these are both references to a fairly common practice in those times. I didn't know this until I studied for this. The people who were troubled by evil spirits were taken to guys who had some supposed expertise in casting them out. The process tended to be long and ritualistic and certainly more about magic than about faith in God, which is why people used to be amazed when Jesus cast out a demon with just a word. Prominent among the magical formulae they used were certain so-called Ephesian writings. So we shouldn't be surprised to see these traveling exorcists turning up in Ephesus, nor at their somewhat magpie approach when they saw such power delivering people from evil spirits. Names are and were important in Jewish culture, but especially so in the magical practices which hung around the edges of that culture like a dirty little secret. So when these guys, here a guy called Paul, using the name of a guy called Jesus so effectively, they think of it as just another magic name that they can add to their list. The Seven Sons of Sceva is surely a name that belongs on a sideshow tent or on a film poster. In a world where there is a demon under every bush, call the Seven Sons of Sceva. <laughs> well, whether they were or weren't really seven sons of a high priest with whom no Jewish record can trace, they make a terrible mistake when they use the name of Jesus as a magic spell. When they do, something certainly happens in response. In a successful exorcism, 
the exorcist casts out the demon. Here the demon casts out the exorcists and also strips them naked and duffs them up a bit. It's what one of my commentators wittily describes as a reverse exorcism. <laughs> now, we do want to say a word or two about the whole business of deliverance ministry, the casting out of evil spirits. There's, of course, no time to go into detail now, and for obvious reasons, this is not a subject that we choose to dwell upon. But here are some important headlines. If you have any questions, please come and see me after the end of ministry time in a few minutes. A, evil spirits are real. Those who explain them away as just an old-fashioned way of speaking about mental illness have a point because the two do sometimes go together. But the two are not the same thing. Once again, this is not that. B, I'm personally not surprised that one demonized man was able to strip, wound, and defenestrate seven exorcists. I've seen that kind of strength many times in my time in the police. C, deliverance, the setting people free from, uh, from evil spirits, is not a freak show, so we don't tend to do it in public. That's unless the demon concerned is fool enough to create a scene and bring on a power encounter with Jesus. In those circumstances, we don't hesitate. D, deliverance is powerful. As a two-day-old Christian, because I didn't know any better, I cast a spirit of confusion out of an extremely drunk young man, twice the size of me, who was mocking the gospel. He fell, apparently dead, at my feet, which was a bit alarming. <laughs> for, for, for what seemed like several minutes, but it was probably only a few seconds. When he eventually came to, he was as sober as a judge and accepted Jesus as his saviour. E, as that story illustrates, you don't have to be some kind of expert to do deliverance. But I think you do have to be led, or at least permitted to do it by the Holy Spirit. F. On the whole, nowadays I prefer to pastor people into freedom rather than blast out the demons and leave them to it. The young man I just mentioned just had to go on a long and winding road to eventual mental health. As the light of God increases in a person's life, it seems to me, any evil spirit presence just become <coughs> present just becomes more and more uncomfortable until he simply drops off. In the same Luke passage that I just referred to, Jesus goes on to speak of the risk of reinfection, as we might say, after the evil spirit goes out of a man. And I'd say that's what happened to my friend. If the patient is spiritually strong, the risk of spiritual reinfection seems to be very much reduced. Gee, contrary to popular belief, a Christian can have a demon, but it's nothing to worry about. If you think you have one, you probably haven't. <laughs> but if there are sins or other compulsions in your life over which you have no control at all, I would look for a spiritual cause. And we're going to do some of that later on. And my experience is that it's a lot easier to deal with uh, an evil spirit than it is to deal with a physical illness, which is sometimes caused by an evil spirit, by the way. H, discernment of spirits is a listed gift of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. And I'd be really interested to hear from you if you think you might have it. But generally speaking, the usual spiritual gifts rules apply. That means that like any gift, it'll come to any of you who need it from time to time, 
but some people just seem to operate in it with particular frequency and power. I, most important of all, Jesus is Lord. Light wins over darkness. So far we've looked at exposition, extraordinary miracles, and exorcism. It's surely time for a bit of exaltation. This is chunk number four, verse 17. The Lord's name was exalted even by this sordid little story. My dictionary says that to exalt is to speak highly of someone or to raise them to a higher rank. And that's what happened to the name of Jesus in verse 17. Well, that sounds great. What's the danger, I hear you ask? And I think the main danger is another version of the one that we just examined, using the Lord's name as a magic formula. That's a very different thing from truly speaking in Jesus' name, which is speaking out of faith that we're really acting on the orders of Jesus as an ambassador acts in the name of his country. In verse 17, the name of Jesus was quite rightly magnified, but I hope not just as a magic word. And I hope that as fear fell on the people of Ephesus, the effect wasn't to keep them cowering under their beds, afraid of what might happen the next time they heard this terrible name. What I hope it did was to make them take seriously both Jesus himself and the good news of his kingdom at hand right now. And while I'm on the subject of exaltation, it can be tempting only to tell the glory stories of our own spiritual walk and to omit the gory stories of failure and defeat. I don't know about you, but I tend to find the glory stories don't encourage me at all. Rather than thinking, if she can do it, so can I, I'm much more likely to think, oh, I could never do that. But when a speaker acknowledges his weaknesses, a different dynamic altogether is at work. That does encourage us, because the chap on the stage is obviously flesh and blood just like us. It's all too easy to accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative. There's an old person's song again. <laughs> you only have to look at Facebook to see that's true. But reality and integrity encourage people far more than our great deeds of daring do. Back in the passage, it is the Lord's name that is exalted here, not Paul's. Let's try and keep it that way. Next, chunk number five, verses 18 to 20, the extermination of evil. You know, singer, a, a linguistic little trick that's going on there. Uh, good. John Wimber often said that people belong before they believe and they believe before they behave. Or more pithily, you have to get the fish in the boat before you can clean them. Saved people don't get everything straight, straight away. In verse 18, we see that just as holy fear has come upon the whole city, there's also a cleansing effect on the church itself. And it's worth pointing out the church must already have been pretty massive since the value of their magic documents came to something like three million pounds in today's money. These people not only confessed the sin of their occult practices, they got rid of all the associated paraphernalia. That's a lot of money right there, burning on the bonfire. Probably some articles of great beauty and antiquity as well. The easier course would have been to keep it all or flog it. But these people rightly recognized the demonic origin and power of that physical stuff and the absolute necessity of getting it out of the world for good. 
A friend of mine who came to the Lord about the same time as me, you know, back when dinosaurs ruled the earth, she told me that she was worried because she'd found an Ouija board in the attic. She herself hadn't used it for years, but she came across it and instantly felt it was an intensely evil object. I suggested that she try and burn it. Well, she was rather an otherworldly character, what we used to be allowed to call a posh bird, and I had very little faith in her ability to burn anything. <laughs> but I needn't have worried. As she described it, she took a couple of pieces of newspaper into the garden, set fire to them, and plonked this heavy teak board on top of it with a prayer. Minutes later, the whole thing was gone, and she rang me up to tell me so. Apparently, it went up like petrol, sending a jet of fire into the sky, and disappeared without a trace. A few years back, a local priest, who's now moved on, told me about the evil presence he sensed in a particular room connected with the university, and the ill effect it was having on one particular student who spent a lot of time there. He called up some trusted friends who traced the source to an African ceremonial mask on top of a high bookcase which was completely invisible to the naked eye, having fallen flat many years ago and disappeared from view. They took it away, they destroyed it, and the atmosphere in the room completely changed. The student who had become so thin and ill-looking began to glow with health once again. So if any of you have been involved in magic or the occult, I encourage you not only to confess it today, but to get rid of all the trappings as well. And do it in a way that means nobody else can go to your bin and fish it out and use it. People get into this kind of thing thinking of it as just a bit of fun, but it's deadly serious. One night duty in the police, some of my team said they were going to use a Ouija board in their meal break. Well, when I looked in on them a couple of hours later, the board was nowhere to be seen. They all looked deathly pale, and none of them would say a single word about what had happened. When I worked in a London law firm, one of the reception staff went sick for about 10 days. On his return, he looked so ill that I asked him if he should really be back at work. He said he'd had terrible headaches, and he still had. After doctors, consultants, scans, every painkiller under the sun, they just weren't going away. So he'd come back to work. I felt prompted to ask him what had happened about the time that he started getting the headaches, and he said he bought some tarot cards. The headaches had started that day, but that couldn't have anything to do with it, could it? After several days of trying to persuade him to burn them, he came in one day looking fit as a flea. I didn't really have to ask, but I did anyway. You burned them, didn't you? He said, how do you know? I said, because you feel fine, don't you? He had to agree that he did. We cannot afford to mess around with evil practices. And that was clearly the conclusion that these Ephesian Christians came to. It can't have been easy seeing all that valuable stuff on the bonfire rather than sticking it on eBay. But it was right, and they did it. And we read in verse 20 that the result of their exterminating evil from their homes was the expansion of the kingdom as the word spread and prevailed over other beliefs and superstitions. And our last X word is simply exit. Verses 21 and 22. Seeing such wonderful success, how many of us, I wonder, would be open to simply moving on and leaving other people to take over? 
The easy thing would surely have been to stay on and lead this fast-growing, large, effective church. But what was right, as Paul determined in the spirit, is to move on. And to that end, he sends a couple of friends ahead to prepare the ground. Presumably that would mean finding a place to stay, some form of work to sustain their mission, some Christian contacts if possible, and sussing out the state of the Jewish population too, because that's where they always started. In the meantime, Paul himself finished handing over the leadership of the church. As it turns out, he didn't have as long as he might have liked to achieve that. But that's another story. Don't miss next week's exciting episode. So in conclusion, I hope we've seen that this little passage is a series of choices, good and bad, between what's easy and what's right. When God expounds new truth to us, which we find challenging, which are we going to choose? When God does extraordinary miracles, are we going to roll with it or reject it? And if we do accept it, are we going to place the whole burden on the miracle worker or are we going to press into God for ourselves? Is exorcism altogether too difficult a subject to even think about? Do we know what to do when confronted by an evil spirit? Are we going to try and fake it using the name of Jesus as a magic spell or are we going to be led by the spirit? When good stuff happens and the Lord's name gets exalted, Is it really the Lord's name that's embiggened, or is it our own? Are we prepared ruthlessly to exterminate evil from our practices and our possessions? And when things are going really well, and we come to a place of comfort and perhaps effectiveness in the gospel, are our ears still open to the whispering of the Holy Spirit to make an exit and press on to what's next? In all these things and in everything, when it comes down to a choice, are we going to do what's easy or what is right? Please stand with me and I'll pray for you. Lord Jesus, we we proclaim your name. That you are Lord of all things in heaven and earth. We invite you to come by your Holy Spirit now and drive out all our darkness. We confess our sins. We confess the friendships that we've made with spirits that are not your Holy Spirit. And we renounce them in Jesus' name. Lord, would you move among your people now giving freedom, but giving gifts as well. And as we come to minister to each other, will you be present to do mighty works through the laying on of your people's hands? Amen.